So I work with college students uh, in an effort to get uh, college students ready for college. Many high schools uh, will help seniors think through a few keys to success in college. Um, even at a college level, uh, the university wants their students to do well. So they'll give them more keys to success. Uh, did some Googling and uh, tried to summarize these uh, keys to success in college uh, into three. And uh, this is my wording, but this is what I found. The first is you need to own it. You need to own it. Don't just show up, uh, but get involved with the, the class material. Get involved in class, involved with your professors, involved in the university. You need to own the college experience in your classes. Secondly, you need to build it. Build it. Don't, um, uh, again, don't just show up, but, but build the right portfolio. Extracurricular activities, clubs, uh, build the resume while you're there. Own it, build it, and third, plan. Plan it. Plan for the future. Internships, jobs, goals. Own it, build it, plan it. That's pretty good advice. If you do those things while you're in college, uh, it will generally go well for you. All right, what about uh, when you enter the working world? Uh, your first job. Keys to success in your first job. Again, uh, this comes from salary.com. Uh, summary, again, my words here. The first key to success in your first job is to impress people. Impress people. First impressions are everything, so make a good one. Impress people. Secondly, learn stuff and know stuff. Uh, become an information magnet is what they recommend. So not only will you learn the company cultural, cu culture, uh, you'll learn uh, the policies, how things work there, but then you'll also become someone who knows things. So people will be coming to you for information. Impress people, learn stuff, and know stuff. And third, key to success in your first job, produce. Produce. Set goals, meet goals, make things happen. Again, really good advice. If you do those things in your first job, it will go well for you. How do these keys to success compare to life in the kingdom of God? What are the keys to success in the kingdom of God? Our text give a, gives us four this morning. To be poor, to mourn, to be meek, and to be hungry. Uh, the way that Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, what he calls us to seems so upside down. It's not what we'd expect. We, we would likely expect Jesus to tell us something similar, sort of a Christianized version of the keys to success to starting college or starting our first job. The common ways of the world to produce, to gain power, to gain influence. But he doesn't. What we see in this passage is that life in the kingdom of God, life in exile, life following Jesus in this world means that we will live as an upside down people. And I want to look at these four surprising attributes this morning of being poor, of mourning, of being meek, and being hungry. Let's look at each of these. First, we're called to be poor in spirit. Uh, so these are called beatitudes, and that means blessed or happy. Um, and happy, not in a uh, lighthearted, temporary way, uh, but the happiness that comes from relating to God as we were intended to relate to God, what we were created for. It's a much deeper happiness than we tend to think. Look at verse 3. The first beatitude is there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What an interesting way for Jesus to start his sermon. This is very upside down. And what he's doing is he's laying the groundwork for the upside down nature of what, it, what following Jesus is all about. And he says it begins by being poor in spirit. 
What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Here's a definition. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. And Jesus is saying, if you acknowledge your complete and utter bankruptcy before God, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. How do you get the kingdom of heaven? By acknowledging that you have nothing. I think back to the first home that my wife and I purchased. Uh, the process uh, that we had to go through on the front end to ensure that we could afford this house was extensive. Uh, the mortgage company needed pay stubs from our jobs to make sure we had the income to pay this mortgage. Uh, they had to run our credit scores to make sure uh, that we had a history of paying our bills on time. The list went on. The whole process took a lot of time, uh, and they had to make sure that we had what it took to pay for this house. If something falls through, they find out we don't have what it takes, we don't get the house. The whole mortgage qualification process is set up to prove that you have what it takes to get the house. What does it take to get the kingdom of heaven? You must acknowledge that you have nothing. You must own your complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. And this is where Christianity equally offends all of us. Because it tells us that due to the corruption uh, within us caused by our sin and rebellion, that we will never have enough to earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that in the most uh, paradoxical, upside-down way, by declaring we are spiritually bankrupt, that we have nothing, is, this is how we get in. This is how we get in. Is this your view of Christianity? Can you own this? Naming and claiming the fact that you have nothing. That you offer nothing to this equation. That you're bankrupt. We sang the hymn Rock of Ages this morning. It says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. How does this fit with your view of God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the bankrupt. For theirs is a kingdom of heaven. This leads into the next surprisingly upside-down characteristic, that of mourning. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So he moves from being poor in spirit to being someone who mourns. Again, not a celebrated character trait in our day. That didn't make our, our list of the keys to success for college or work. Uh, what does he mean here, blessed are those who mourn? To be mourn is to, uh, to, to, to mourn is to be broken hearted over our sin, over our rebellion against God, and over the brokenness in the world around us. And do you see how, how being poor in spirit uh, leads us, um, when we acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, how this leads us into mourning, how those are connected? It breaks us over the severity of our sin within us. And the sin and brokenness that we see in the world around us. And it leads us into mourning. I'm sure you're familiar with the term status quo. The way things are, right? Uh, I might say that the status quo of UK basketball is that we win. Uh, so maintaining the status quo for UK basketball means simply to keep winning. Uh, to keep things the way they are, right? 
Uh, What is the status quo of your own heart? What is the way things are in your own heart and in the world around us? I think if we're honest, if we're we're really honest, we'd have to say that the status quo of our hearts and of our world is that of brokenness. It's that we are not who we wish we were and that things are not the way we wish they were. That there are constantly um, gut-wrenching injustices and tragedies in the world around us, even within our own families. The status quo of our hearts and of our world is defined by sin and brokenness. We simply can't get away from it. This is where this upside-down attribute of mourning comes into the picture. Uh, rather than, than submit to this status quo, to just become cynical, uh, to shrug your shoulders, to give in, or and try our hardest to avoid it altogether and surround ourselves with as much pleasure and comfort as possible and just hold on for the ride, rather than that, the followers of Jesus are called to mourn the status quo of sinfulness and brokenness in our own hearts, in the lives of those around us, and in the world around us. We are to be moved to sadness by the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Blessed are those who mourn. We're called to be a people who mourn our short tempers with our children. We're called to be a people who mourn the way we exclude the kid who is different from us at school. We're called to be a people who mourn our materialism. We're called to be a people who mourn the racial injustice and oppression in our own hearts and in society around us. And to do this, to really mourn, means we have to face reality. Face the reality of our own hearts, of our own actions, the world around us, and not make excuses, not qualify, not justify, but see things honestly and mourn. And what's the promise that Jesus gives us in verse 4 with our mourning? That we'll be comforted. That will be comforted. Christians don't mourn their own sin and the brokenness of the world around them as those without hope. But we mourn as those who will be comforted. And what could possibly comfort us as we try and face the reality around us? Only the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, After Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, after his miracles, after his earthly ministry, he went to the cross and died. And his death and resurrection on the cross, it means that the rescue mission of God, of his making all things new again, is underway. And that the sin in our lives that leads us into mourning, it doesn't have final say, but rather it was paid for in full on the cross. And therefore we stand as those who are forgiven. And this also means that the world around us, all the brokenness that we feel, that we experience will one day be no more. That all the pain, all the sad things will be fully redeemed. Our comfort is that Jesus has forgiven us. He's making us new again. He's making the entire cosmos new again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Being poor in spirit and mourning leads us into this third upside down attribute of meekness. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, No one in business school told me to be meek. Uh, This isn't a character trait that we talk a lot about. What does it mean to be meek? 
to be meek is to be humble and gentle towards others, allowing our spiritual poverty to shape our behavior towards others as well as to God. Frederick Bruner points out that the perfect image of meekness that we have is Jesus when he was on trial before he went to the cross. He says this about that. He says, The overall impression of Jesus on trial is an impression of poise. It is the poise of not having to assert oneself. It is the poise, if I may put it this way, of a believer. There is a meekness that is almighty and a gentleness that is strong. Jesus embodied an almighty meekness. He was perfectly humble and gentle towards others. So for us, this means allowing our spiritual bankruptcy that we feel and experience to humble us. And then for this humility and gentleness to shape the way we relate to God and the way we relate to one another. Meekness, humility, gentleness. This is incredibly upside down compared to the world around us uh, and compared to us in most of our day in and day out lives. We feel the opposite of meekness every time we open up our Facebook feed or our Twitter feed. Think about the social media realm. It so easily invites us into the complete opposite of meekness. Because if meekness is about not having to assert oneself, then the world of social media surely encourages the opposite. Uh, David Brooks, in his new book, The Road to Character, talks about this. He says, social media encourages a broadcasting personality. Our natural bent is to seek social approval and fear exclusion. Social networking technology allows us to spend our time engaged in a hyper-competitive struggle for attention, for victories in the currency of likes. People are given more occasions to be self-promoters, to embrace the characteristics of celebrity, to manage their own image, to Snapchat out their selfies in ways that they hope will impress and please the world. This technology creates a culture in which people turn into little brand managers, using Facebook, Twitter, text messages, and Instagram to create a falsely upbeat, slightly over-exuberant external self that can be famous first in a small sphere and then with luck in a large one. The manager of this self measures success by the flow of responses it gets. The social media maven spends his or her time creating a self-caricature, a much happier and more photogenic version of real life. People subtly start comparing themselves to other people's highlight reels, and of course, they feel inferior. Meekness means not having to assert oneself, while our social media world encourages a hyper-competitive struggle for attention. Another example, think about the presidential race that's going on right now. It is rare to see a presidential candidate exude meekness when campaigning. Uh, The whole system really is set up uh, to where showing meekness means you're going to lose the race. Rather, it's all about boasting, proving yourself, going on and on about your own resume and how great you are and how terrible the other person is. Meekness is not celebrated in our culture, but it is very upside down. What might it look like for you to exude meekness in your life, uh, to not have to assert yourself all the time in every situation, uh, even when you're right, to not have to make it known that you're right in that particular situation, to lean further into humility and gentleness in your relationships. How would this shape your relationships at work? How would this change friendships at school? How might this change uh, dinner table conversation at home in the evenings? 
Uh, to be meek is very difficult uh, because there's a fear attached to it. There's a fear behind being meek. What is the fear? Uh, the fear is this, uh, th- that if I'm meek, then I won't be recognized and I won't get what I deserve. At stake for us is this recognition and, get, and what we think we deserve. But look at the promise that Jesus attaches to this in verse 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Isn't that amazing? The, the attribute of meekness, which shows itself in humility and gentleness and not asserting your greatness and not making a case for why you're the best or why you're right and why other people are wrong, that this actually results in you inheriting the earth. We are afraid to be meek because we are afraid we're going to miss out and not get what we think we deserve. But Jesus says, become meek and you'll inherit the earth. There will be no way to win a presidential election in our day by leading with meekness. Yet Jesus says, the meek one day inherit the earth. They will rule with Jesus. This is so upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. They all build on each other. What's the fourth upside down characteristic? Look at verse 6. It's to be hungry. It's to be hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, so I really love to, to run uh, long distance. Um, what is a hobby for me and is life-giving for me may sound like death to you. Um, but I really enjoy it. I love to run. Uh, last few years ago, I did a race um, at the Red River Gorge here in Kentucky. Uh, this was one of the most challenging races I've ever done. It was 13 miles of really steep downhill down into the gorge. You'd cross the river and you'd go uh, up this really steep uphill back out of the gorge. And we, and we did that, I think, about seven times in this race. Uh, and it almost killed me. Um, around mile 10, uh, I was on the brink of being totally depleted of all energy in endurance sports. We call this bonking uh, or cracking, whatever you want to call it. I was there. Uh, and... Um, and I had nothing left. And I was starving. And I was like hallucinating about cheeseburgers and donuts. And, uh, and the last thing you would imagine thinking about while you're running. Um, and I was on, the, on the, this portion of the trail where there was no one around. Really worried about what was going to happen. And then I come out of these trees into this clearing. And sure enough, there's a team of volunteers. And this table before me with all things sugary. It was amazing. They, uh, they had fruit snacks, candy. Candy bars, cookies, Gatorade, uh, all the things I was craving. And I just walked up to this table. I sort of hobbled up to the table. And there were these volunteers. And I got really emotional and teared up, partly because of the physical exhaustion um, and because I was so happy to see what was before me. And I just started eating fruit snacks and saying thank you uh, for, for what they had given me. Um, because I was, so, I was so exhausted. I was falling apart. I was so hungry for something that would sustain me, for something that would satisfy me. And sure enough, there it was. This is the type of hunger that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, This is the person that has acknowledged that they have nothing within themselves that will satisfy them and sustain them. And the one thing they need is the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. That they're starving for it. That they're craving His righteousness that they've experienced this emptiness, there's a longing to be filled that shows itself in a hunger and a thirst only for the righteousness offered to us in Jesus Christ. 
I had nothing in me on that trail. And the one thing I needed was on the table before me. And so it is with us, uh, with the righteousness that we find in Christ. We have none of that inside of us. But it has to come from outside of us. And so it comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. Are you at a point in your life where you are willing to admit the emptiness of all that the world has to offer you? With each year of my life, each experience of my life, I experience this to be more true and more true. The things of this world always leave me hungry and thirsty for more. They never satisfy. There's never enough. I'm willing to bet this is true for you. The world says just a little more money in your bank account, and then you'll be satisfied. The world says once you get that promotion into that perfect job, then you'll be satisfied. The world says once you get that cute house on that cute street, then you'll be satisfied. The world says just one more click on those images on your computer, and then you'll be satisfied. The world says, just drop a few more pounds and then you'll be satisfied. Are you willing to admit that you've tried these things and and many others and they still leave you empty? That they still leave you longing, hungry, and thirsty for something more? What Jesus is telling you this morning is that he alone and his righteousness is the one thing that can truly satisfy you. He's telling you to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And only then will you be filled. Acknowledge the emptiness of striving after these things of this world and embrace the upside down satisfaction of being filled with the righteousness of Christ. And you know that's going to look upside down to the world around you. It's going to look empty to them. But guess what? That's the upside down nature of this kingdom. To be fully satisfied with the righteousness offered to us in Christ. A lot of things promise satisfaction. Jesus alone can deliver on it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, these beatitudes are interesting. They're not commands, uh, they're blessings. Uh, True blessing, true happiness is found in owning our bankruptcy, in mourning our sin, in not having to assert ourselves, and in seeking to be filled with the righteousness of Christ alone. Bruner says about the Beatitudes, he says, this already tells us something about Jesus, that he blesses before he commands, that he helps before he orders. What an invitation to come to the one who asks you to bring nothing other than your need for him. My favorite hymn is, Come Ye Sinners. And I'm going to read it to you. And I'd like you to listen To the words of this hymn. It summarizes this well. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye needy. Come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Without money. Without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners, Jesus came to call. 
Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. What are Christians called to in a post-Christian culture? How are we to live in this world? We're called to be an upside-down people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me pray and ask God to make us into such a people. Our Father, we can't help but be confronted with uh, the upside-down nature of your kingdom and of what your Son came to do. Uh, Lord, our weeks leading up to this hour in worship are filled with a message of reality, with a way of understanding ourselves and our world. And our time in worship this morning, Lord, before you is a reorienting of our hearts to true reality. From the liturgy we've recited, the songs that we've sung, the offering, the preached word, the table before us, Lord, these are a recalibration for our hearts of what is true. And Lord, it feels upside down compared to the world around us. What you're calling us to in these Beatitudes feels upside down according to the world around us, and it is. But Father, I pray you would give us the grace to see the beauty in these Beatitudes this morning. To see the beauty in your Son who embodied these perfectly. And that through us embodying this beauty, we might be salt and light to the world around us. Father, thank you for your word. Would you apply it deeply to our hearts and our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.